And I would also argue to, you know, with what every, everything that my colleagues said, reminding administrators, reminding um, other colleagues that, um, you know, activism is a form of love. Activism is a form of making our campuses better. Um, and so helping change that narrative from activists, student faculty and staff as troublemakers to folks engaging in love for their campus and making it more accessible. Um, and if we can change the narrative and change that story, we can get so many more co-conspirators and supporters to uh, help move initiatives forward. Welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Heather Shea. Today's panel includes four of the five authors of this book, Identity-Based Student Activism, Power and Oppression on College Campuses. As we launch the fall semester, student activists will, once again, as they have for decades, resume their work to address racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, and other forms of oppression. As someone who works alongside and supports student activists in my day job, I am super excited to talk about the ways that campus administrators can both reflect upon their work and beliefs about student activists and consider new ways to improve relationships. Before I get to introducing the four panelists joining me today, I'm gonna to share more about our podcast and today's sponsors. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com, on YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by Leadershape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. This episode is also sponsored by Stylus. Visit styluspub.com and use the promo code SANOW for 30% off and free shipping. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information about each of our sponsors. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am broadcasting from the ancestral, ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples, also home to the campus of Michigan State University, where I work. Michigan State University resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Welcome, Chris, Stephen, Alex, Meg. I am so excited for our conversation today. Um, as you each introduce yourself, tell us a little bit more about who you are, what your roles are in your institutions, and I'll kick it off with Chris. Welcome. Thank you, Heather. It's good to be here. I'm excited to reconnect with these colleagues who we started this project many, many years ago, and now we're all in different places than we were when we started this project. So it's fun to reconnect in this way. Um, my name is Chris Linder. I use she, her pronouns, and I am coming to you today from the homelands of the Bannock, Goshute, Navajo, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute peoples, which is also where the University of Utah is. Um, I work as an associate professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy at the U, and I also get to direct the Mikulski Center for Violence Prevention at the U. Um, my research has focused for a lot, I was a student affairs practitioner for 10 years prior to becoming faculty, and so a lot of my research as a faculty member stems from my experience as a practitioner and working really closely with students. 
this project definitely being one of those. We were talking before we started recording that um, one of the things that I try really hard to do in all of my research is always have practitioners on the research team because I think that student affairs practitioners know what to do with the findings in ways that I don't know anymore because I'm so far removed from my practitioner days. And so um, I, I just think that's largely where this work comes from, is trying to make our campuses better for our students and for our, for me, making it better for our student affairs professionals because there's a very high turnover in that arena. And I think we need to do a better job taking care of folks working directly with students. Thank you for that, Chris. I 100% I agree. <laughs> um, Stephen, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Heather. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, good to see all of you. And uh, much like Chris said, um, anytime I get a chance to, um, you know, share space with these folks, I always say yes. And so um, it's been a really fun collaborative experience that has extended for many years. <laughs> so and it keeps going as we as we see today. Um, so thanks for the invitation, Heather, to share some space. Um, so I'm Stephen Quay. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I'm um, dialing in today from Columbus, Ohio, um, which is the traditional homelands of the Shawnee, Miami, Wyandotte, and Delaware nations. And I honor and just respect the, the indigenous peoples that are connected to this land. Um, I also want to acknowledge the forced slavery of Black people who um, built much of, much of what we call the United States of America. Um, so I just want to remind folks about that as well, too. Um, so I'm a professor at The Ohio State University, um, and I teach courses on um, dialogues, on qualitative research, on college student development theory. Um, often when people ask me what I do, um, the first line I often say is, I I really um, try to understand and help people talk about hard issues in ways that are productive. Um, things like privilege, power, oppression, racism, sexism, and the like. Um, so that's how my research started. That's really what gives me the most joy is just really being in space with people, um, watching them struggle to talk about these issues, but still, still contributing and, and doing it even when it's hard. Um, I just really believe in the power of dialogue to promote change in our society. Um, so anytime I get a chance to do that, I'm on board. Um, and then this student activism work has also been um, my pride and joy, um, just really interacting with student activists to understand more about their struggles, their experiences, all the things that we'll talk about today um, has been like the second line. And then more recently, the work I've been doing is around this concept of racial battle fatigue, um, which is really around the exhaustion that people of color are experiencing from racism and then the ways it in, in which it impacts our um, psychological, physiological and emotional well-being. And then more specifically trying to figure out how we support people of color in healing from racial battle fatigue. Um, so that is a bit about me. And again, I'm delighted to be here today and um, share space with everyone. So thanks for the invitation, Heather. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Alex Lang, welcome back. I think this is trip number three to the Student Affairs Now soundstage. Happy you're here. It is. Happy to be here, Heather. Um, like Chris and Steven said, I am over the moon to be with these folks here today. Um, we have a lot of fun together um, while we talk about very serious topics together around student activism. So um, again, my name is Alex Lang. Uh, pronouns are they, them, there. Um, uh, 
I am dialing in today from the traditional and ancestral homelands of the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute nations and peoples. And I think when we're talking about student activism, it's really important to draw attention to the ways Native folks in some ways were the first activists on this land, right? And thinking about how um, the federal government over time continued to not honor treaties, not honor land, and how many of these folks have sort of been having these fights for centuries, right, on this land that we're on. I'm an assistant professor and uh, program coordinator of the Higher Education Leadership Program here at Colorado State University, Fort Collins. Before I was an uh, assistant professor, um, I worked in a variety of functional areas on college campuses, um, like Meg most recently, and identity-based centers and work. Um, which is part of the invitation that led me to the study, right? Like, as Chris was saying, right, invited practitioners, and that was what I was, um, and still think I'm a real practitioner at heart, even as I teach doc students. Um, and I want to make sure to sort of say that this is a really great example of a research team that honors both theory and practice, right? Um, and I think Stephen and Chris both modeled the way with that with this team and this project. So I'm really excited to talk about all of that today um, with these folks. My research um, most recently, when I'm not coordinating a program now, um, is focused on a longitudinal study of transgender students' experiences on college campuses. That national study has will now be in its fifth year this year, which is kind of wild to think about. Um, I still have some participants who made it through COVID and the study, so it's great. Um, so looking forward to talk, talking a bit about student activism. Thanks so much, Alex. Meg, welcome to Student Affairs Now. Thanks, Heather. Thanks for having us, and uh, it's great to be in space with all of you again. My name is Meg Evans. Any and all pronouns work for me. Most quickly respond to they, them. I uh, am zooming in today from the sunny, yeah, still sunny, Gulf Coast, um, which is the traditional ancestral homelands of the Creek, Muscogee, and Pensacola people and nations. Um, I currently serve as the Director of Education and Research at a justice-based educational consulting org. Um, we used to be based out of Atlanta. Now we're everywhere, so I am everywhere. Um, and I'm also doing some adjunct facilitation at the University of West Georgia. Um, I worked in student affairs, like Alex mentioned, I worked in student affairs as a practitioner for about 15 years, most recently in uh, identity-based spaces. I also did almost a decade in housing, so I feel like I've earned my stripes um, in student affairs, being on call 24-7 for a decade. Um, and I also have always, both as a student uh, and staff, identified as an activist and been a thorn in the side, a loving thorn in the side of many an administrator on campus. Um, so I believe in student activism. I believe student activists have been um, kind of at the forefront of so many of our justice movements in this country, um, still are and will continue to be, um, but are often kind of placed in this um, trope of being troublemakers. And so I think um, I was very excited to be a part of the study and, and certainly work with the, the scholars here and also TJ um, to tell the story of activists and how we as campus administrators have failed activists. Um, and what we could do to better serve them, um, knowing that our campuses are inherently better because of the change that student activists demand. Uh, prior to my time in student affairs, I worked as a middle school teacher. That was a wild ride. I was an emergency medical technician, also a wild ride, and I played professional football. Uh, also a wild ride, but my favorite role is actually being uh, a parent to my four and a half year old son. Um, he is Black, multiracial, and so everything I do, my scholarship included, is to create a better future for him. 
Thanks so much, Meg. I bet the emergency management hall director football, like all of that plays in at some point, right? Yeah. Yep. True. True. I could tackle a student if I needed to. I haven't, <laughs> but I could have. And just knowing it. that I think made me better at my job. I love it. That's fantastic. Um, well, it's great to meet you and great to have all of you here. Um, and yes, also TJ Stewart, who wasn't able to join us today is the fifth author on this book. So shout out to TJ for all the great work they do. Um, so let's talk about how the book came to be. Uh, Stephen, tell me a little bit about before there was a book, there was a hashtag activism on campus. People were posting about sessions at conferences. How did this come together and result in a study in this text? Yeah, so I appreciate this question because one of the things that we talk a lot about as a group and is throughout the book is um, the importance of history. Um, so, you know, history often repeats itself. So I just think this question helps us get at that a bit. Um, so I think I, I'll, I'll start with this sort of like adage that, you know, the more things change, the more that they don't um, as well. So even though, you know, it's been since like 2015 is when we started this work, like we see a lot of the same themes, you know, seven years later. Um, so like Chris and I, the impetus for this is we just started having conversations about, you know, the police murders of black and brown people, um, as well as just increased awareness around sexual violence on college campuses. Um, and then just noting, noticing from our own experiences as we were looking at these news reports, whether it's in places like Inside Higher Ed, or the Chronicle of Higher Education, or even more globally on like, you know, NBC, CNN, et cetera. Um, just, we noticed that a lot of the reports were around how the extent to which like campus administrators are really struggling to know what to do with these like student activists, right? Um, like they're creating these demands, they're um, protesting, they're um, picketing, they're occupying the president's um, office, like all these sort of like news reports around um, as student activists responding to um, just wanting to live more fully in their minoritized bodies and, and administrators struggling with knowing like, what do we do with these folks, right? Like, how do we, like, essentially, how do we like get rid of them? Like, so it was this very negative view of seeing them as troublemakers, as pests, like Meg alluded to this notion of troublemakers um, earlier. Um, and so Chris and I just wanted to, to understand that, like from the perspective of student activists themselves. So rather than just viewing them as like troublemakers or just listening to what these news reports were saying, like what if we actually like spend some time talking to student activists and then specifically those who hold minoritized identities. So queer people, um, um, you know, people of color, um, students who are disabled, right? Like what, like how would they describe their experiences as activists? And then how would they talk about their relationships with um, administrators? And so prior to Chris becoming a, a faculty member, she had worked for 10 years in student affairs. Um, I had not had full-time student affairs work experience. And so we wanted to invite folks like Meg, like Alex, like TJ, folks who were in identity-based centers because we really, to Chris's point from earlier, we really wanted to also center the perspectives of those who are actually working with student activists in those spaces. Um, because I think so often those of us who are faculty, um, like we can be elitist at times and think we know what's best, right? Without actually talking to the people who are doing the work on the ground. Um, so 
you know, from Chris and I, our conversations, we're like, what a, like, what an innovative way to actually like bring those perspectives to the forefront. Um, and so we invited a group of grad students. Um, at the time, Chris was at the University of Georgia. Um, I was at Miami University. So we invited a group of grad students who we were, who were working with us. And, you know, I think Chris is chuckling in part because she and I often had this like back and forth around, I wanted this, the study to be much smaller, like the people who we invited. Chris was more like, let's invite everyone, right? And so I think at times like, it was a, like, you know, eight, nine, 10 grad students. So it became, in my opinion, unwieldy at times. But I think the benefit of that was we got to get a lot of different like perspectives in the, in the, in the midst of trying to make sense of these data and, and collecting them. Um, and it was just, I think, a beautiful experience of like, how do you make sense of these various perspectives that you have? Um, so I will admit in hindsight that it was a smart decision, even though in executing it at times, I think it was a, it was a struggle. Um, and so, you know, like, so of those grad students who we worked with, um, Meg, TG, and Alex were the three who, you know, stuck around long enough for us to then um, morph these ideas into, into this book, um, which is what we, we have here today. And so um, for me, I think the, the joy of this process was just the different ways that folks could come in and out, and then their con contributions are still, I think, reflected in this book as well. Um, and then um, you get to see, I think, just the, traje the trajectory of student activism. And so again, what I love about this, to bring it back full circle, is um, we could have written this book now, seven years later, and some of the same issues like are still present around activists simply just wanting to exist in their minoritized identities and wanting to have better relationships with administrators who understand their voices, understand why they're upset, understand why they're um, wanting change to happen and wanting just space for, to, for them to just feel heard and validated. And so, so yeah, so that was, that's the origin story of the book. And, um, and it's just been, I think, a joy just seeing this work come to fruition. Well, it's a fabulous book and a great resource, um, I think, because of the ways that you talk about practitioners and recommendations, which we're going to get to um, as well. Um, Alex, I want to turn it to you. What is what is identity-based activism? Let's do a, a couple of key terms. I'll turn it to Meg also. What is identity-based activism and how is it different from other forms of activism? And which identities are we really talking about here? Social group identities, personal identities? Tell me more. Totally. Um, Dale Stewart once offered in a talk that I was in, or, or I was I was listening to the talk of DL talking, and DL talked about identities or differences that make a difference, right, in people's lives. And so what we're often talking about with identity-based activism is sort of these social group memberships around race, gender, class. Um, sexuality, ability, or disability in these ways. We sort of formally, I think, write it in the book as something like organizing, resisting, and engaging with issues directly related to identity and oppression. Because if the sort of popular image of student activism and sort of popular media is things like um, folks who are protesting against climate change in the 90s, and my gosh, were they the ones who were really right early on? Right. Or we think about like SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, back in the 60s and early 70s. Right. These groups that sort of organize themselves around a cause first 
versus a sort of social group membership. And what we thought, what we noticed when we sort of read the gamut of literature on student activism, which there is a good set, there's much more now than there used to be. Um, there is a really good um, hand, higher education handbook chapter that my colleagues um, wrote sort of summarizing that scholarship over the past 20 years. Um, but part of that we noticed was there was a lack of attention to the sort of social positions of the activists themselves. There wasn't as much attention to um, sort of black activists organizing around racism, for instance, or uh, queer students organizing around um, homophobia and queerphobia and transphobia on college campuses. If anything, that stuff emerged sort of in campus climate literature more than it did in the activist literature. Um, and there are some folks and part of the reason we sort of take the identity-based activism lens is because we see the folks who have minoritized identities having a different stake in this activism, right? It's not just about sort of working on behalf of others, which many of them cite in our study, right? A lot of them say, I'm doing this so the people after me don't have to do this, right? Um, if you want a popular example of this, I'm a big brother um, fan and probably shouldn't be, but... Um, last season, there was a, an alliance in that house called The Cookout, and it was six Black players that guaranteed that there would be a Black winner for the first time in Big Brother. And part of the reason they talk about sort of abandoning their personal strategies in the game of Big Brother is that they wanted future Black players to be able to play the game, right, without having to worry about their race and navigating whiteness in that house. And I think it's really similar for our student activists in this study, right? And I think too, we are really specific about calling these students activists, but a lot of them in the study wouldn't define themselves as that, right? They thought it of as their form of labor to future generations of students. And so in the book, we have a number, uh, or in the larger study rather, um, in the book too, um, there are a number of students who have minoritized racial identities, gender identities, sexual identities, disability identities, the overlap, right? These aren't just one and done folks, right? That we they focus on a single axis of oppression. And so that's really what we mean by student-based identity-based activism versus maybe like cause-based activism, right? We're all happy to um, study the experiences of majoritized activists who want to align themselves with minoritized causes, but we wanted to intentionally uplift minoritized voices on college campuses in this study for that reason. Thank you so much. I think that's really helpful to kind of get that grounding. Meg, what other terms should we make sure the audience is aware of before we before we go on? People who definitely who don't necessarily work in the space of identity centers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we really talk about four terms a lot throughout the entire book and just in, in the study in general, identity-based centers, dominant identities, minoritized identities, and power. And they all kind of go together. But when we talk about identity-based centers, we're talking about centers, offices, departments, really just spaces that are um, specifically centering uh, minoritized student identity. So that could be um, multicultural centers for uh, BIPOC students, LGBT resource centers, women and gender centers. Um, these spaces often serve as a place for resource gathering, advocacy, education, both for folks who hold identity and often for folks who don't, you can think of things like safe zone or safe space, right? That we see on the vast majority of campuses. Um, these spaces also serve as a place of refuge for so many minoritized students, particularly uh, I'm thinking about multicultural centers for students of color, BIPOC students on PWI campuses, right? Um, 
having worked in LGBT spaces and a couple of campuses, I had so many students come in and say, this is the only place I can be me, right? I'd have students come in and change clothes to so they could express their gender identity in a way that felt good to them and then change their clothes back before they go out on campus, right? So often these spaces are one, if not the only place that, that students can feel um, who they are, right? Um, and one one thing that we talk about quite a bit in, in this scholarship that I don't think is talked about often is um, uh, staff and faculty who serve as the, the staff or the advisors in these spaces. Often these are folks, going back to what Alex said, but these are folks often, not always, but often, who hold the same minoritized identity as the students they served. And so whatever's happening on campus, whether that's you know a racist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist policy that's implemented by the university or something that has happened, not only does it impact the students that uh, identity-based staff are serving, but it also impacts us as folks who uh, hold like identity, right? And so I think it's just an additional nuance that when folks who work in identity-based centers were, um, you know, asked to support, advocate, um, and kind of hold uh, students who hold minoritized identities and also were experiencing it. And that nuance often isn't talked about um, in scholarship. Um, and also the, the consequences of advocacy tend to be higher for folks who hold uh, minoritized identity in that way as well. So we've already said this word 14,000 times minoritized, so I might as well define it. Um, <laughs> but we we use minoritized, um, like a lot of folks use uh, marginalized, but we use it to refer to the identities in which a person experiences systemic oppression or lack of access. Um, lots of folks, like I said, use uh, marginalized, but in this text, we use it to recognize people with power, often those who hold dominant identities, um, who are the ones that enact the oppression on other people. This doesn't just kind of, oppression doesn't magically happen. It doesn't happen in a bubble, rather there are actors to it. Um, and so by using minoritized, we try to highlight that there, <laughs> there are systems of power in play that, um, you know, um, hold some folks in, in minoritized identity. It signifies the kind of social construction and underrepresentation of subordination um, in systems of power, including on college and university campuses. On the flip side of that, dominant identities um, refers to identities in which a person experiences privilege um, or systemic access to resources. Cisgender men have access to gender privilege, white folks access to racial privilege. You get it. Um, and then finally, power, which is tied to uh, dominant identities and minoritized identities, I would argue. Um, but power, you know, in part uh, borrowed from Beverly Tatum and certainly from the power conscious framework that Chris is going to talk about in just a moment. But uh, in this text, we define power as access to the ability to influence or significantly alter one's own life or someone else's. Um, power can be tied to social identity. So think dominant identities and privilege, right? And it can be tied to positional identity. Think administrators, university leaders, et cetera. Um, often I would argue that those two are tied together, <laughs> um, social and positional, but I digress. Um, but I think those are the four terms that we talk about a ton throughout the book. We actually have them highlighted in the beginning of the book too. Um, but I appreciate the, the time to uh, just break those down a little bit further. Thanks, Heather. Yeah, thanks, Meg. Um, so Meg just mentioned this idea of the power conscious framework, and I think it's really hard to talk about activism if you're not recognizing the way that power plays um, a role. So Chris, can you talk about this? Then there's a visual in the book, we'll link it in our show notes, 
um, which I think is really particularly useful and and a little bit about its its origin story too as as a model. Yeah, and shout out to Meg. Meg's actually the person who made the visual representation of the framework. So <laughs> thanks, Meg. Um, but yeah, the park, so it's interesting. So I was approached uh, many years ago by a publisher who was doing this like series of books called The Great Debates. And she was like, hey, can you do one on sexual assault on college campuses? And I was like, I mean, it was like the biggest sense of imposter I've had in my career. <laughs> I was like, wait, me? No, I'm not, I can't do that. But eventually I decided I'm going to give it a shot, right? Like my my role, I, I believe strongly in trying to contribute to the conversation, not thinking that I, my contribution is the be all end all, but it's just something to put into the world for other people to respond to and hopefully build on and um, draw from. So, and this was also happening around the same time that many Black women were starting to call attention to the fact that folks in student affairs were misusing and appropriating intersectionality theory. And I was like, yeah, we do, <laughs> right? Like, and I started reflecting on why are we over relying on intersectionality theory when intersectionality was originally designed to center Black women, women of color, uh, women from low-income communities, that was the intention. And then in student affairs, we're like, oh my God, this works so well for helping people understand all their identities and all that stuff. And, but we were slowly co-opting it in ways that, that didn't pay attention to the power piece that was the original intention of intersectionality. And I didn't want to be yet another white feminist co-opting intersectionality. <laughs> just in place of, I think what we were doing, I think it was well-intended, but I think many of us were using intersectionality to call attention to multiple identities and trying to talk about power. And I was like, how can we come up with another tool to talk about identity and power without co-opting something that wasn't originally intended just for that? And so this um, framework largely emerged from that, reading lots of stuff about critical consciousness, of course, reading about intersectionality, thinking about power, um, thinking about the, the way that identity and power were connected. And so that's where the framework came from. Um, the, the base of the framework are, it's, there are three foundations. So power is omnipresent, power is everywhere. Um, power and identity are in <laughs> linked and then identity is socially constructed so we've made up all this stuff but it still has significant consequences on our lives and then the six tenets of the framework really lean into the first three are really at the individual level so really thinking about what's my role in interrupting power and being cognizant of power so the first tenet is self-awareness so figuring out who we are and how we show up in spaces really understanding our own context and history. So I think the pieces that most of us are trying to do around acknowledging land and labor acknowledgements, um, some, it's, it's a struggle because we don't always do a great job of understanding why we're doing that, it becomes performative. And so the second tenet is really digging into our own context and history, trying to understand in the context that I'm in now, how did we get to where we are? Um, and then the third one is reflecting on our own behaviors based on that self-awareness and the understanding of history. And then the second three tenets are really starting to push people into working in, in systems. So I think sometimes there's this false dichotomy in social justice work between individuals and systems. 
people are always like, well, if it's a systemic issue, no, it's an individual issue. Well, guess what? Individuals make up systems. So it's both of those things together. And so um, these second three are really about that. So um, being interrupting systems of domination whenever we can, um, figuring out the role of power. So really paying attention to how is power showing up in this space. It's so subconscious for most of us all the time. And then, and it really gets in the way. I mean, I think about as I've been in a career in higher ed for 20 years now, unfortunately, some undergraduate students are really intimidated by me and that impacts our relationship. It's not a form of power I want access to, but it's a form of power, form of power I do have access to. And so I have to navigate that. And then the solidarity um, tenet is really about working together on issues of oppression. So I think especially in the sexual violence world, there's a, a bit of paternalism happening where we tell survivors, you can't do this yet because you're not ready. You haven't done your own healing yet. And so we dictate who gets to do what. It, it could very well be like that in other parts of social justice work as well. But for me, it, it really came up a lot. And then there's also some dictating like, white people can do this or can't do this around issues of, of racism, straight people can do this or can't do that. And so trying to let go of some of that gatekeeping and really think about what are the contributions I should be making? When should I step up? When should I step back? And, um, and being mindful that it's different for different people, right? Like some people of color are like, Chris, please say something. Other people of color in the same room might be like, shut up, white lady, we got this. Right. And I have to be okay with navigating all of that complexity and not making it about me and not trying to figure out how do I be the good or the right way kind of white person. And so I think that's where that last tenet comes from is around figuring the solidarity is about figuring out how all of our all of the issues of oppression are connected together and and being intentional about what our role is and address. Thank you so much for that background. I think the model is great. Um, and I it's awesome to hear its origin as well, because I feel like working in women's center work, our, our paths have kind of overlapped. And that's a constant conversation that we're having. Um, so Chris, staying with you, um, I am really curious about the historical context. Maybe we could talk about that briefly. I know we did a little bit of it earlier. But I'm really interested in how over time institutions of higher education have both worked alongside and encouraged student some forms of student activism as a as a form of social change, but also in some other ways penalized student activists. Like, you know, why is why is there this and maybe it's all about identity, but I am really curious about that over time, how have activists been treated? Well, I think first of all, everyone should read Eddie Cole's work in this area. Um, he does a really good job looking at the history. I would say we barely touch on it in this book. We do what Stephen was mentioning earlier and try, like we tried to look at what's been done before us so that we can build on it and contribute and honor the work of the people who came before us. And so, but in terms of the history, like Stephen was saying earlier, like, even in just the seven years, a lot of these things are the same. In 40 years, these demands are the same. There are a couple of pieces out there that have taken demands from black students from the 60s until now and done an analysis and they're exactly the same. Um, and so I think that's, 
part of the historical context that we're working in. And I think the other thing that we have learned about the institution's role in that is that it's intentional and part of institutions, right? There was an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education that was basically how to deal with student activists. And one of the tips was to just wait for that. <laughs> and so like administrators are literally being told, just wait, they'll go away. And so it's an intentional construction on the part of institutions of higher education to just wait them out, which is why history just keeps repeating itself. Um, it's very much how oppression works and it's, it's set up that way. So I think that's part of it. Um, the history pieces, the other pieces that stand out to me from the historical context, so I do remember reading a piece specifically at, at, about the development of the LGBT Resource Center at UGA in the 1970s. There was a group of gay men who organized a dance, a, gay, a big gay dance is what they called it at UGA. And I was just talking with a colleague about this yesterday and I just read it somewhere. Oh, it was in, um, an, yeah. So about the ways that this can also be a space of joy. I think we often talk about activism, especially related to oppression as like, it's resistance and it's exhausting and it is all of those things. And also the community building that comes with it is a, can be a source of joy. And I think that article I remember reading about the big gay dance at UGA was exactly that for those students. And so I think it's important that as we look back historically and even contemporarily, we find the both and. I don't wanna I don't wanna do the toxic positivity thing where we're like, oh look, everyone's having fun. It's not that. It's talking about students are dealing with significant oppression. And in the midst of their resistance, they're also building community and finding ways to have joy with each other in those processes. And and finding a sense of belonging, right? I mean, I think that's the other part is, you know, identity spaces, you know, kind of being that home, but also the place where you can find your co-conspirators. Um, Heather, before we go to the next question, yeah. can I add a little bit to what Chris offered. Yeah, I think too, like, and I think Chris is the one who taught me this in our environments class when I was a master's student was we have whole offices dedicated to things like service learning, which are often forms of sort of institutionally sanctioned social change. Like I think of all the times that like every end of year report I read were like students contributed X amount of hours to the community this way. And um that they save this much dollars because like that's what we need to quantify service to money. Um, it's really weird. Um, but all this to say that when institutions are the source of ire, they dodge, right? But any other institution in society that higher education institutions don't like, right? Whether that's faculty, whether that's students, we're fine going after those things. But we do not like it, people who have deep respect for institute, institutions of higher education, primarily upper level administrators, think that their institution is off limit, but every other institution in society is is on limit or on limit. Is that what you say that? Or it's fair game? It's fair game. That's what it is. Thanks for adding that, Alex. I I agree, and I I remember reading some of those early pieces. Um, I think from Chris actually where, cause I was working in an environmental living learning community at that point in time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, A, environmentalists are very white, but also they're fighting this thing that's very external, right? And the institution's like, yes, we need more of this. Super helpful. Um, 
So speaking of students and the work that they're putting into this, um, there's an entire chapter in here about student labor as, or student activism as labor. Um, Stephen, can you talk a bit about this and about how student activists are both heralded, you know, this work is important, but also trivialized, called upon to like, you know, be the spokesperson, but then pretty isolated. So like, what are the effects of putting labor upon student activists and, and how do institutions benefit from activist labor? Yeah, so I really appreciate this question. Um, so I, I've taught a student activism class at Ohio State um, twice now. And this concept is the concept that like really like drives it home for students in the class. And to me, it's the one that I could, I mean, we could spend the rest of the time just on this alone. We won't, but we, we, we could. Um, and so I think the, 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 the thing that I'll just start with is, so one of the participants in our study, Teresa, I think there captures this really well. So Teresa said, um, a student should have the privilege of just being a student. So I'll just repeat that. A student should have the privilege of just being a student. Um, that's also like the, the beginning title of one of the articles we wrote that's around this notion of student activism as labor. And so what Teresa is getting at essentially is that student activists, so if, if we think of the, the word student activist, right, the word that comes before activist is student, right? And so like we, like those of us who teach graduate students, like we always say to them, like your, your priority as a graduate student is the student part, right? Like not your assistantship, not these other pieces. So similarly for student activists, like the activism is not, should not be their priority. It's the student part, right? And so I think that emphasizing that is really important because like what Teresa is essentially encapsulating is that notion of student activism as labor. And more specifically, it's not that, it's not just that it's labor, but it's unpaid labor. So the folks that, you know, Alex and Meg have been talking about, those who work in identity-based centers, faculty, college presidents, the provosts, like administrators, like all of those folks, we are the paid employees at our institutions. It is our responsibility to be doing the work to support student activists. But because many of us are not doing that or we're failing to do that, student activists step in in order to correct and, and draw attention to those, to those areas. But again, they're not compensated for that, right? And so I think that notion of it being unpaid is like really important. So let me just share some examples of like what this looks like of like the uncompensated part. So for example, student activists are calling out, calling out attention through like awareness raising events. So I mentioned like the protesting, the picketing, all those, piece, those pieces, like that's like an example of, of that, right? Of like drawing attention to it. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the of the woman who um, one of the a sexual assault survivor with the the mattress right like carrying literally like using like carrying the mattress as like a protest to illustrate the ways in which institutional leaders were not addressing sexual assault on campus right um, so I think that's like one one example secondly we've talked about this notion of like writing demands right so Chris mentioned like the demands from the 70s are the same as they are now like like 
students students of color and particularly who are, who are activists keep saying we need more faculty and staff of color right like that is something that they keep saying so that is one demand that is consistent like they are writing demands to illustrate like what needs to happen on on campus educating their peers about oppression is, is another one right so they are spending time in their classes and outside of their classes sharing stories to their peers with dominant identities about this is what oppression is like these are the things that I have experienced as a disabled person, as a queer person, as a person of color, right? So that's another one. And then I think lastly, like oftentimes institutions will then sometimes co-opt, right? Student movements for their benefit. So when it benefits the institution to highlight something that a student activist has done, like they're all about it, right? But then when it's not to their benefit, well, these are pests, they're troublemakers, right? So I think that's another way that 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 notion of like student activism as labor happens. Um, and so, you know, some some folks might say, well, you know, it's 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 helpful for a student activist to to do this, right? And so, like, and I think when they say that, so these are some of the the other th pieces that we've talked about about like what this labor is contributing. So. One of the things that student activists do that is quote unquote helpful is that they're essentially providing um, like free sort of campus climate assessments for their institution. So like many of us, you know, we do these campus climate assessments, right? And what happens? Like the report sits somewhere in some library um, and nothing actually happens, right? And so, we know what the issues are. Like student activists have been telling us for decades what the issues are, right? And so institutions are benefiting from knowing where the gaps are in our services, right? The things that we're doing that are not living up to what we say we're about in our espoused values. So that's like one sort of like thing that activists are also doing that again is like unpaid labor. Um, and so I'll just end with like, just talking through some of the costs and consequences of all of this. So one that you mentioned in the lead into the question, Heather, was this notion was isolation, right? So what happens when somebody is constantly pointing out problems or things that are not right? Like often folks feel some kind of way about that. Um, they like we all, we often don't respond well. Like we can become defensive. We can view these people as like. Well, there goes, you know, Teresa on one of her rants again, right? Like that's the sort of notion. And so it, it becomes, it feels very isolating that you're like the only one who's constantly raising this issue. And then your peers are isolating you. Your relationships with your advisor can change as a result of that because now you're pointing out what they're doing to not be supportive. So that's like one cost. The other is emotional trauma. Um, I really want to point to the work here of like um, Vicaro and Mena who have, you know, talked about this concept of secondary trauma or vicarious trauma, where it's not just the folks who are experiencing the trauma, but also those who are in close proximity to those. So for example, like hearing stories constantly of police violence towards black people can inadvertently cause secondary trauma around racial battle fatigue to folks of color, activists of color, right? Survivors who are sharing stories of sexual assault and sexual violence. Um, can also experience secondary trauma with those who are constantly hearing those stories. So that's like another sort of a cost, like burnout is also something that these activists are, are experiencing. And, you know, Alex shared the, the story of like 
well, let's just wait them out, right? So essentially, you keep sharing the same issues year after year, you're gonna get burned out. And at some point, you might just be like, well, screw it. I'm just, I just need to graduate at this point, right? Because clearly, nothing is changing. So I think that's another cost. And then the last one is, like their schoolwork, their academics suffer because they're spending all this time trying to hold institutional leaders accountable. Like that's precious time they could be spending in other ways that their peers with dominant identities are not in, are not doing right. So their academics can, can suffer as a result of that. So for me, like the, you know, the TL semicolon DR part of this too long didn't read or didn't listen. Like I think that the take the takeaway point from this is like student activism is benefiting the institutions, whether or not campus administrators are seeing it, but that it's an unpaid or uncompensated form of labor that is that is benefiting them. And that's why I think it's really an issue um, because they get free labor essentially without actually having to do anything to correct um, the, to respond to the activist demands and concerns. For those who are listening to the podcast versus watching the entire time you were talking, Stephen, people were giving snaps and nods and, you know, just a hundred percent agreement in, in what you're talking about, because I think we all see, we all see it, right. We're all experiencing and, and, you know, maybe watching this happen on our own campuses and feeling like, oh my gosh, again, the student is up there telling their story or remaining vigilant to the whatever thing that the institution's going to do next. Um, and sometimes that takes a form of written demands. And I we've talked about demands a bit. And Alex, you and I have shared institutional history here at Michigan State. And there's a recent kind of response to student demands happening. Um, and it seems to be at least getting some recognition, right? So when students write their demands down in this very tangible way, um, you know, people do listen. Maybe it's the language of it's a demand, right? This isn't something that is optional. But can you talk a little bit about, are these effective? You know, what's been your experience in working with student activists um, alongside student activists who are writing demands? Um, do demands matter? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I think what I've noticed anecdotally is that often demands, if they happen, they happen at the same campuses, right? So that's sort of this practice that student activists have carried on to the folks coming behind them, right? So Michigan State's a great example. Like Heather said, you know, we have shared history at Michigan State University. Heather now works in the office that I used to work in um, as an interim director. Um, and one thing that I think demands do that are very effective is they sort of form, they become the student form of institutional memory, right? A lot of institutions maintain their own memory, some would call an organizational saga, for instance. Um, and institutions often are the ones telling that story, right? Demands come from a student perspective and sort of creates a, a different kind of memory of what's been happening at this institution. So going back to Michigan State, for example, the Black Student Alliance, I think the original demands that most people cite are back from the 64-65 school year. If I'm not mistaken, it might be the 63-64 school year, regardless, 60s. And one of the things that, one of the clearest demands made in the 60s by BSA was a freestanding multicultural center. Right, that and um, more faculty and staff 
of color, particularly black faculty and staff of color, or black faculty and staff rather, sorry. Um, and that is now finally happening in terms of planning phases at Michigan State now in 2022, right? And so students have been able to sort of look back at these demands and say, listen, this isn't a new ask. This isn't something that came out of the blue. This is something we've said we need. And for, um, I hear, I've been in rooms with a lot of administrators who are like, well, we don't know what students want. So we'll just give them this. We'll give them a cupcake party on the quad and help make sure that helps campus climate, right? And students have literally outlined what would improve campus climate in these demands, right? And so part of this, and this goes back to the labor piece too, these students have done the labor of saying, this is what would actually tangibly improve campus. We have done the research. We have talked to the people that we talk to every day, right? And so demands in the short term sort of outline what could improve campus. But I think in the long term, they serve as this form of institutional memory from a student's perspective of, here's what we've asked in the past. Here's maybe what we've gotten, which might not be much if you look at the, 64, at the 65 demands from BSA at MSU, to now saying, again, it's the same stuff, but y'all just keep wanting to do the food, the fun, the festivals, as, as Meg points out, right? And so... Um, it's really challenging. I, I, I get the defensive posture that administrators take when demands are issues, right? I can, I can empathize with that to a degree. But the, the, um, the, the utterance of demands from students often means that there has been a breakdown in communication or zero relationship to begin with. I have not been on a campus where students have issued demands when they actually have really good relationships with administrators and not just the leaders of those groups. It is like that the entire group knows that like someone in administration sees them, hears them, responds to them. Um, because sometimes they think, for, for instance, at Michigan State with the previous president uh, uh, of Michigan State, um, you know, she had this once a semester meeting with all the leaders of the minoritized student groups and that sort of was like, this is the way I'm gonna develop relationships with students. But that was only one leader from each group who then had to sort of carry the message of, well, I don't think they carried the message that Luana was supportive, let me be clear. Um, but I think they had the responsibility of carrying the message back um, to their groups rather than the president being front and center. And I get it, college presidents, I, I don't envy college presidents in our particular historical moment right now. Um, and, I think that this is one group of folks, if, if college presidents are gonna put themselves in front of student government leaders, in front of residence hall association leaders, in front of these formalized positions, they also have to put themselves in front of informal student leaders as well. And that is the way I think demands most often pop up when there's a lack of relationship or a lack of trust, quite frankly, from activists to institutions. Activists, I think, are, <laughs> And, and we'll, I'll talk about this in the next question a little bit, but activists for the most part really appreciate any form of meaningful progress, right? Uh, if TJ was here, TJ would say the bar is often on the floor for these activists, right? They just want some tangible piece of change. And if they see institutions are working on it, they're really grateful, but it, it's even, but yeah, I'll leave it there for now. But that is, I think the, 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 the point of demands 
their effectiveness and sort of the place they serve in activist toolkits. I really appreciate that, Alex. And I'm I'm in sort of this unique position right now because in my role directly to the president, and I'm working with my second president, and our student activists around sexual violence have been quite active for the last five years, as they should be. And so it's just been interesting to sort of be in, a, in this space of negotiating, because like to your point about the defensiveness, like I also can empathize with the defensiveness. Like none of these, the vast majority of university administrators are losing sleep at night worried about our students. Like mm-hmm. I genuinely believe most administrators genuinely care about students. And they are scared to death of student activists. And what's so striking to me is that like in these demands, for some reason, a, a lot of administrators I've worked with or, or even observed over the years, it's like they can't get at the root of what's going on with the student demands. They're sticking with the surface, right? Mm-hmm. Like when students say, we want the Title IX process to be less harmful to us as survivors, administrators throw their hands and say well it's title IX; it's a federal law we can't do anything about it instead of hearing like what's under that is we are harming students with the processes that we have what could we do differently and so like i i just appreciate your points about the relationship and the defensiveness and figuring out ways to get at the root because they're college students like they know what they need right now as an administrator it's my job to figure out how can I take what these students are saying they need right now, dig in and figure out how I can make this institutionalized and over the long term? Like, what's the real issue that needs to be addressed? So, pass me. Yeah, yeah, I would add as a student activist and then staff activist, the amount of upper level administrators behind closed doors that have said, we get it. We see it. We know. We understand. We hear. And we can't because power, money, politic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so helping folks find that line of where we can move forward and where we can support student activist demands, um, and helping folks be brave. I mean, like, we're trying to pay our rent, pay our mortgage, send our kids to school. I get it. And there has to be a line in which folks, you know, take a step of bravery, right? Um, so I agree with you, Chris, that I think folks get it. And I do, as a former administrator, you know, um, I get it. I do get that line. And students, de- you know, like students deserve more. Going back to Stephen's quote, originally at the beginning of this question, right, students deserve to be students. And it's our job as administrators to clear the way to let them do that. I think there's, I mean, to your point, Meg, too, and both what Alex and Chris have said, like, the other the other piece, too, that com- is coming up for me is, is, so when we talk to, with some of these administrators, like there's this fear around getting fired or losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. And so it, to me, it's like, I always like, I, I'm, I struggle with like being a professor, right? Who has tenure, who has it's like, it, it's like, I don't think of my job being in jeopardy, right? And so my initial gut reaction is to be like, what do you mean? Like this, where's this fear coming from? Like, are you literally going to get fired for supporting an activist? And then I have to like back off and be like, okay, like, like, let's, let's like think about that. Like, like, how do we like, how do I support you in navigating that? Right. Because mm-hmm. now as somebody who's like a, the, the chair of my program, 
And I have grad students who are telling us that this equity value that we have, we're not doing, we're not living up to it. My initial place is like, well, yes, we are. Like, like I come from this place of like defensiveness as well. So I, I can empathize with administrators in a different way than I could previously. And so it, to like to like Meg's point, it's like this notion of like, when we get it, and then we think there are these policies or things in place that prevent us from doing what we want, it, it feels like we're at sort of at an impasse. And so I think what I want is to figure out like, to Meg's point, like, what do we do with that knowledge? And then to Chris's point, like, how do we get at the root of what students are asking for and see our agency? Because often the that the we can't, or, or there's this policy is that I think is often a ruse or a guise to being inactive or to not doing anything. When all of us have agency in some respect, we just may have been socialized to not see it. And so I think that's part of it too. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I, I will give credit. I Alex, since you've left MSU, we have a new, we have lots of new administrative leaders and our new vice president for student life and engagement within, I think it was first year, launched an inclusive campus initiative that cataloged um and then respond is beginning to respond to all of the student demands over time. And like we had this one summit where we were given these like ledger sized pieces of paper with like, here's the demand. What are you going to do? Who's going to be responsible? When will this be completed? And it was impressive. And that that inclusive campus initiative has continued. So um, that's a to that's a topic for a different um, episode. Like what do institutional what does institutional response look like? Um, but things have changed a little bit. I, I do think that that's a step right in the in the right direction. So let's move to recommendations because I do think that that's kind of the meat of of this of this book too. It's very practitioner centered. Um, so Chris, you know, as a person who worked in an identity based center, um, what would you recommend for folk, for staff who work in identity centers to to work with student activists and address power and oppression on campus? Interesting. One of the things I wanted to mention about this project is that we asked student activists to identify people who worked in care. And we started the entire our language about what, how to refer, what's an administrator, what's a faculty member, what's a staff member. We tried to term institutional agents and Meg hated it. <laughs> Not to call you out, Meg, but I just remember those conversations. Like we have wrestled with this language the entire time. Like what do we call folks who work on campus, because there is a difference between an administrator and the director of an identity-based center and a director is an administrator, right? Like all of those things are, they're messy. But so anyway, we asked activists to identify faculty or staff on their campus who were supportive of them as student activists. I'm pretty sure this is where the bars on the floor came from because we started interviewing some of these folks that the students identified as supportive and we were like, this is what you mean by support? And for students, I mean, it is literally showing up at our walk with water, giving us markers, giving us the space to actually write down. I mean, like these of people of support are so incredibly low like to me it's stuff that is just human decency showing up at a protest with water 
Like, yes, do that, please. But for me, that was an indicator that our students are really struggling. Like if that's what support means to them, we have to step it up a little bit. So I think that was interesting. The other thing that came up when we talked with the staff whose students who I have identified as supportive, there was a definite discrepancy in who operated from a place of fear and who had agency and took things on. Guess who it was? White people were afraid of losing their jobs. People of color were all about it, right? Which is fascinating. Just guess what? White people don't lose their jobs over this stuff. It's pretty rare. When people lose jobs over this stuff, they're mostly people of color and or people with other or with additional minoritized identities. And so we talked about that a lot. And so that's where for for people working with and wanting to support students, I think figuring out ways to find that voice, use that voice, think about your agency, think about where where you do have agency, where you don't have agency. And of course, giving markers and space and all of those things is important. And then like to Meg's point earlier, many of the people who work in identity-based centers share the identities with the students. So they have a pretty good grasp of what the experiences of oppression are. They have lived it for 20 years. They've dealt with it on this campus for a fair bit of time. And so another thing folks can do in those identity-based centers especially is constantly be reminding students of the history, talking about people have tried this before, you're not alone, it's okay, keep going. So the encouragement, the institutional history and knowledge, but then also feeding suggestions. I don't wanna, I don't want to, like, I think it was before we were recording, but Meg was giving very specific, really good examples of, like, saying, connect it to the institutional mission, use doctor, like, all of those kinds of things that are important um, to do. And it's funny that, that Meg said that, um, shared that with us earlier, because literally yesterday, Meg, I was telling a colleague about you and your sort of little subversive ways that you um, did that with the <laughs> student activists. So it's so fun to just like hear you talking about it again today. So. I love that. I love that. Let's let's turn it um, to the other administrators, right? So those folks who work alongside the identity centers, but don't work in identity centers, what are the recommendations you have for them, Alex? Yeah, first and foremost, I would say learn from the stewards of the campus, right? Like I, the first thing I did as a new professional was sit down with people who had been at the institution for a very long time and learn the history, learn politics, learn decision makers, and learn what changes the mind of decision makers. This is my biggest piece of advice for new professionals is that some vice presidents for student affairs are very convinced by large scale data sets. Some vice presidents of student affairs need someone to just sit in front of them and tell them their story. And as soon as you figure out what kind of data moves things on your campus, the better you will be at crafting messages to make change, number one. I think too, and we've talked about this, and I think public institutions have a particularly precarious place in our partisan politics these days, especially as state legislatures have more of a hand in these public institutions, and then we have sort of far-right publications that sort of publicize every event and then take it completely out of context. And so I think, too, is not being, like, 
once you put a, something out in the world, you lose control of it, right? And so how are you going to proactively think about messaging against some of these frames of like coddling students or other things like that, right? You've got to be in this day and age, much more proactive with that kind of stuff. I think Heather, as you shared before, we also have technology capacities that we didn't have 10, 15 years ago, like dashboards, right? So if we can't be in front of students and sharing a message, right? I get presidents are really busy. I get upper level administrators have a bunch of meetings that they're going to that I'm appreciative that I'm not going to. Um, and let's put something on a website that keeps people updated about the progress of these things um, over time. And I think too, as much as you can develop authentic relationships with student activists, even if they're not the folks that you work with, students notice when people constantly show up to things, if they don't know the person, they'll oftentimes introduce themselves um, or you should introduce yourself to those students, right? In those ways. I think the last thing that I um, appreciated about when I worked at Michigan State, for instance, is that my boss was open to me going directly to our student vice president or vice president to have these conversations, right? So it wasn't that I had to pass a message up through the chain to get to those people, right? And so I think in some ways we have to um, think about where hierarchy is important for carrying message up, up the chain and where perhaps we need to lessen our hierarchy in thinking about these sticky and thorny issues that student activists present, right? I think when we we're talking about the defensiveness before, about demands, often things become an us versus them. And I think we have to really remember that the them is often students on our campuses. And so if, if we think about it that way, we can begin thinking about a we to tackle these problems rather than an us versus them as administrators. Thanks, Alex. Stephen, as the faculty um, academic community person, uh, you all are in that space now, I know for sure. But Stephen, tell us about what your recommendations would be for those folks in the faculty. Yeah, so I think number one for me is I think just giving student activists like just space to dream, I think is really important. Um, so I mentioned teaching a student activism class, um, you know, a couple of summers ago, and I just asked them to Im just imagine what, a, what, what would a world that didn't center police look like, right? And they struggle because that's, you know, it's, it's hard to do that. But I think activists like are trying to envision like what this world would look like. So I think just having space to dream and imagine something different, I think is freeing. And I think just really could be really powerful. Um, I think faculty are also positioned differently, right? Like we talked about um, the, the protections that faculty have are just different. So that to me means we have more responsibility to um, show up for student activists, to be courageous to support them in more visible ways. Um, so I think that's also really important. Um, yes, Chris pointed out tenured faculty in particular have those protections. So I think just allowing, like capitalizing on that and being more vocal in our support, I think is like really important. Um, to Alex, Alex's, Alex's point from earlier, um, so Alex mentioned this notion of service learning um, as like a sanctioned institutional practice I think what if as faculty, we gave credit for student activists for their activism, right? As like another form of like credit that's sim synonymous or similar with like, not synonymous, but like on the same on par as like service learning, as internships, those sorts of things that we more value as institutional leaders. Um, but student activists are doing this work, like that's important work. So 
like I think giving credit for that is is really important. And then the last thing that I would say is like um, this notion of like helping activists navigate systemic oppression. I think so often we focus on like, for example, like I, I know a lot of student activists were really um, like proud that um, the police officer who killed George Floyd was was convicted right on those charges. So yes, that's great. We should celebrate that and the system of policing that inherently like deems black and brown people as more threatening will live on well after George, well, well after George Floyd's death, right? And so how do we also support activists in thinking creatively about how we address systemic issues and not just focus on like canceling or getting rid of the quote unquote bad person, right? I think that's a much harder thing to do. And I think faculty can be supportive and like supporting activists and like navigating that that challenge. Thanks so much, Stephen. Meg, to you last, um, co-conspirators and supporters, not current students, maybe community members, maybe other interested parties on campus who either share identities um, or who are adjacent to higher ed, how would you recommend they get engaged? Yeah, I I love this part, particularly as someone who who saw my role as an administrator being a bridge to uh, others on campus and the community. Um, our campuses are beholden to the communities we're in. Campuses are constantly talking about town-gown relationships, and often our campuses fail the communities that we're in. For example, the University of Georgia. I love the University of Georgia very much, and I believe to critique is to love, which my colleagues will giggle at because that is who I am as a person but if we love something we should critique it to make it better and more accessible. The University of Georgia has failed to do that with Athens-Clarke County but what Athens-Clarke County is this beautiful beautiful county in which there's so much community activism going on. It is our job as practitioners of the institution supporting student activists to connect the work that's happening on campus and in our communities. Um, so doing that, I also think another way is to connect our, as my colleagues have already talked about and Alex talked about with looking at the demands from the 60s to 2022, um, we need to connect students with alumni, right? This is not new work. The language might be different. The ways that folks are going about it with technology might be different but it's not different. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you look at the sit-ins and, um, you know, almost 60 years ago with the four North Carolina A&T students at the Woolworth counter in, in Greensboro, what they did is no different than what our students are doing now. They're demanding the same things of what our students are demanding now, but we make history sound like, oh, that's so long ago and, and not connected, right? Um, but I think when we can connect our students to what's already happening in our communities, there's lots of really great chapters of PFLAG or NAACP or right like that are happening in our communities and alumni want to be connected. Um, so an alumni can say, particularly an alumni donors can say a lot more than maybe some current folks can say. Um, and so getting folks connected in that way. Um, and I would also argue to, you know, with what every, everything that my colleagues said, reminding administrators, reminding um, other colleagues that, um, you know, activism is a form of love. Activism is a form of making our campuses better. Um, and so helping change that narrative from activists, student faculty and staff as troublemakers to folks engaging in love for their campus and making it more accessible. Um, and if we can change the narrative and change that story, we can get so many more co-conspirators and supporters to uh, help move initiatives forward. 
I love that. I think that is fantastic. Um, I, you know, I think that we can um, jump through our final thoughts pretty quickly today. Uh, we are at the end, way over at the end of our time. I would love to um, hear what you all are thinking about, troubling, um, pondering now. And then if you can share where people can connect with you, that would be fantastic. So Chris, I'll start with you. Thank you, Heather. Um, I I feel like I just feel reconnected to this work I was sharing before we started that when you write something, it takes forever for it to be published and then even longer for people to grasp onto it. And so sometimes it feels like, oh my gosh, this was so long ago, but it was really good to reconnect. I think the other thing I just want to reiterate or, or I'm thinking through is much like we have false dichotomies all over the place, I don't want us to leave us leave with a false dichotomy. I really appreciated Alex's point about it's not us versus them, it's where's the we. And I feel like we need to use caution around that with various roles on campus as well. So I do talk a lot and I'm very intentional about working with student affairs practitioners because I am a tenured faculty member. And so I think it's important that I do what Stephen was saying and use that. Um, and also, I'm always going to be a student affairs person. And I believe many a student affairs professional is also a scholar. And so I, I worry about that false dichotomy as well. So I think that's the other thing I'm leaving with. Thanks so much, Chris. Uh, Meg, closing thoughts. Um, I, I kind of shared my closing thoughts, but you know, a, a lot of what I'm thinking about currently is thinking about our incoming student affairs practitioners. So I'm teaching a master's class this semester, and you know, so many of our Gen Zers are so much better at um, self care and drawing boundaries than maybe us Gen Xers and millennials are. Um, and you know, I'm I'm interested in in helping the next generation of um, folks going into student affairs and or even the professoriate and thinking about um, how do we help folks draw lines um, in a field that um, often demands we don't have any. Um, <laughs> and you only advance uh, when you don't have those boundaries. Um, and so that's something that is weighing heavily on me, particularly as we're coming back to campuses um, and uh, really thinking about the the beautiful hearts that so many of our, our Gen Zers have, and so many of them are activists, and thinking about how we kind of uh, meld the two together, uh, but really honoring them. That's what's sitting on me a lot recently. Thanks, Meg. Alex. Yeah, so I'm teaching our Theory and Practice of Change course this semester in the PhD program, which is a lot of organizational theory. and. One thing I was thinking about last night was I think my next major branch of scholarship is going to be this idea of accepted deviance amongst practitioners. Like, how do they learn the ways to sort of um, be deviant in their roles to support students? And like, we don't really have good, like, I know how I did it and I know how others have done it, but I don't know if we have a strong organizational understanding of it. Um, and so I'm really, I, I mentioned this in class last night, and so I'm really excited about this potential idea of like, how do we understand staff members' deviance practices in institutions of higher education in their effort to do the mission of the institution? Oh my gosh, I love that so much. I need to read more. So good. Can I take your class, Alex? That sounds fantastic. Stephen, your final thoughts. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Meg actually, um, you know, said a lot of the things that I wanted to say just around um, wanting people to just take better care of themselves and each other in this work, I think is just really what's um, staying with me. So I won't, I won't repeat all of the things that Meg already said beautifully. Um, so I think I'll just end with, um, in the, in the spirit of, of teaching a class, like, so I'm teaching this um, facilitating intergroup dialogues class this semester and, you know, two classes in, I'm already feeling just tremendous hope. Um, like to me, a lot of the things we're talking about in this class is exactly around student activists. Like what a world it would be if people just validated when people said they need something, we just said, I'm sorry that happened, or I hear you, how can I support you, right? And I think that's what I'm hoping the students will do in this class is just validate people who they're in dialogue with and activists are simply wanting to be heard. So validate, 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 ask how we can support. And I think that our world would be so much better if we all practice that. Oh, let's, let's end on that on that note. Thank you so much to all four of you for your time today, for your contributions to this phenomenal book. Um, I am so grateful uh, for us getting a chance to share a space today. And sending heartfelt appreciation to the dedicated behind the scenes work of Nat Ambrosi, our producer here on Student Affairs Now. Thank you so much, Nat. If you are listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com and scroll to the bottom for the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. While you're there, check out our archives. Thanks to the sponsors of today's episode, Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person, for students and professionals, with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadershape offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit www.leadershape.org slash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor of the Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use the promo code SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. Please take a moment to visit our website and click on the sponsors link to learn more. Again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks to all of our listeners and everybody who is listening and watching and working alongside student activists on your campus to make um, change happen. Uh, make it a great week, everyone.